Good morning. So if you're new or newer here at LEFC, first thing to know is I am not the pastor. Our pastor looks a lot like him right there. Uh, our pastor is Tony Hunt. My name is Corey Mitchell, and I'm the chairman of the Board of Elders here at LEFC. And I thought, okay, should I, I'll share something about myself. So uh, I don't like cold weather. And this has been a pretty abrupt change uh, for me, and I don't know about for you. The other thing, last, Sunday, or last weekend, right, we rolled our clocks back uh, an hour, which is great to get an extra hour of sleep. But then Monday, I think this might be my least favorite day of the entire year, I walk out of the office at 5, and it's already dark. Uh, so that's kind of... But continuing in our series here today, uh, post-Tenebrous Lux, after darkness, light, so the spring will come again. So we're going to continue our series. The ushers, the ushers are going to come down, and they have Bibles. Um, if you need a Bible today to join us in our time of study, please take one. If you don't own a Bible, I encourage you to take it, make it your own, spend time in, in study. So we're continuing in this series, post tenebris Lux, and it's really a recognition, a celebration that it, that it has been 500 years since Martin Luther posted the 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel, Wittenberg, Germany. I am so thankful that we're doing this series. Thank you, Pastor Tony, that we're doing this series, because for me, it is important for us to understand those crucial events that have brought us to this point in time. How is it we're here in 21st century America, Lancaster, PA, even Evangelical Church, and this is, this is incredibly significant. Uh, so before we get into looking at the text and spending time in study, I just wanted to take some time and go through some historical con context. What was happening? What key things were going on at that point in time in world history, if you will, that coincided with, with Luther? So October 31st, 1517, again, Luther posted the theses, so a couple weeks back, 500 years. Next key event uh, that preceded this uh, that I want to bring up is... Uh, 1453. And 1453 was the fall of Constantinople, uh, so named after Roman Emperor Constantine. And with the fall of Constantinople, this brought an end to the Roman Empire, but it also opened into Western Europe um, ancient writings, Greek and Roman thought. It, it, it introduced that. And so just another little context. We're in the middle of the Reformation at this point in time. It's not really kind of like, here's the start date of the Reformation, but just an interesting aside. Part of Luther's 95 Theses, uh, a big part of what he's targeting, as we've been talking about, is the sale of indulgences, right? That someone needs to buy from the priest or the pope an indulgence that would you know, transfer them out of purgatory and into heaven. So he's targeting that sale of indulgences, but, but also, particularly, he's he's critical of the sale of indulgences being used to pay for the building of St. Peter's Cathedral in, Va in the Vatican. Well, one of the chief ar architects of that cathedral was Michelangelo, a name that we would obviously associate with the Italian Renaissance. So that's happening. And, and so that's introducing just whole new ways of thought, right, into, into Western Europe. Next event is 1450, next date is 1454, the Gutenberg Bible, Gutenberg Printing Press, movable type. We've been saying each week, here we are, right? And we have this. And 
profoundly, right, coming out of this, this movement is the Scriptures in the people's, the common people, I'll say that about all of us, right, we're common folks, in the common people's hands in their language. Think of how important the printing press then is to the proliferation of the text going out, right, of the Scriptures going out, uh, and other religious writings of the day of the Reformers and so forth. So, crucial event. And then just 25 years before uh, Luther, 1492, wait, I know that year. That sounds familiar, right? In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Uh, so the beginning of the age of discovery. Uh, and then in 1519, just two years later, this is like American history, or American, this is world history, right? Back in high school. I didn't know there was going to be history today. 1519, Ferdinand Magellan launches the uh, first voyage to circumnavigate the earth. So, these are crucial events, right? Because now the world is being opened up, right? The new world, the world is being opened up at that point in time. Now, how about following Luther, posting the 95 Theses? So, pretty quickly, the Reformation movement broadened beyond Luther, and by the mid-1500s, the Reformation movement really was centered in Geneva, Switzerland, under leadership of John Calvin and his teachings on the doctrines of grace. Now, this title, Post-Tenebris Lux, it's, it's the motto of the Reformation, but it's also particularly, first of all, the motto of Calvin's movement and the motto of the city of Geneva and still on coins to this day. Uh, so that's where this uh, title comes from. Coming out of Calvin's movement in the later 1500s, early 1600s, Calvin's movement resulted in the Puritan movement in England, and in 1620, a group of Puritans made a pilgrimage to the New World on a ship named the, wait for it, the Mayflower. Perhaps you've heard of it. Now, we're, we're, we're coming up on Thanksgiving, so I'm pretty sure that in our house, uh, we're probably going to be watching the Charlie Brown Thanksgiving special. Snoopy with that chair, so annoying. Anyway, but also for us on that same DVD is Charlie Brown and the, the, May, the Mayflower and the Plymouth Colony. So the founding of the Plymouth Colony, right, this is the foundations of us as a people, right? This is hard to imagine more important event uh, for us as a nation, right, than the Plymouth Colony. So that's 100 years after Luther, but, but all of these impacts, well, what's the point, right? The point is that this is not just Martin Luther, yes, a bold move on his part, but this is a movement of God at a key juncture in human history, a movement of God that recovered the centrality of the Scriptures, put them into the hands of the people, and spread the gospel through Europe and to the Western world. And so when I ponder this and I think about this, I'm reminded that Jesus is zealous for his church. He will build his church. He will not suffer even his own people to corrupt his church. He will reform because he's committed to what the Scriptures tell us. He's going to present us his church as a radiant bride. He's going to do that. And so there are times in history where he will reform. And so praise God that such a time happened 500 years ago. Now, we've been talking about various, last, last week, um, you know, salvation, uh, talking about just these core messages of the salvation message. Well, there were five what were called solas, uh, another Latin word, that came out of the Reformation movement. Three of them really came from Luther, and then two more added later that just so foundational to a proper understanding that was recovered, rediscovered uh, out of that time period. So just talking through those for a moment. First one was sola scriptura, 
only Scripture. Scripture alone shows us the way of salvation. Second sola, sola gratia, only grace. God's grace alone provides salvation. Sola fide, only faith. Only through faith can we be justified. And then the latter two, sola Christus, only Christ. Only through the blood of Jesus and faith in him can we have salvation. And finally, soli deo gloria, for God's glory alone. Salvation is from God from first to last so that no one can boast. So these are statements that come out reference, just profound, profound to this day, right? Profound in our culture to understand these fundamental foundational truths that come from the scriptures. Well, one of the things that comes out of the Reformation movement that we're going to talk about today is the phrase, the concept of the priesthood of all believers. Now, that phrase is not in the 95 Theses. Luther would go on to write about that and talk about that in other writings. It's not in the Theses, but I did pick one of the 95 that kind of gets at the same concept, and that's Thesis number 33, which says, Men must especially be on guard against those who say that the Pope's pardons are that inestimable gift of God by which man is reconciled to him. So this rejection of this idea that we need to have um, a priest or a pope, right, that we would buy an indulgence from a priest or from a pope that would provide us with salvation, right? This is to be rejected. And so the priesthood of all believers is a Reformation doctrine rooted in the Scriptures that states that ordinary Christians share in a common priesthood in that we have direct access to God through our prayers without requiring a human mediator. That's the priesthood of all believers. So let's look at the text. So I want you to open up. Let's uh, start our time in Second Tim- or, sorry, 1 Timothy. I'm just thinking, did I say 2 Timothy to the first service? 1 Timothy 2... And we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. 1 Timothy 2, towards the back, of the back of the Bible. Okay, so let me read this. 1 to 6, 1 Timothy 2. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to, to, be, to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And then here's the two key verses. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So it's a crucial text. Take looking at the last part first. It's not that we don't need a priest. It's not that we don't need a mediator or an intercessor, right? The, the primary responsibility of the priest is to function as an intercessor, to be the one who would stand between God and man and intercede. So it's not that we don't need a high priest and don't need an intercessor or don't need a mediator. We do. It's just that God has provided the perfect high priest, the perfect mediator, the perfect intercessor in the person of his eternal son, in the person of Jesus. And this is the good news. The good news that in Christ, God has made a way for us to be reconciled to him. And that is good news. Now, the first part of the text, though, also gets at this idea, priesthood of all believers, right? 
we are all called to be intercessors, right? I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. We all have the honor, the privilege, and the responsibility to act as intercessors uh, for one another, for those in authority, and those, uh, those folks in our lives. So we're called into that, that common priesthood, if you will. Now, the bulk of our time of study this morning is actually going to be in the book of Hebrews. So let's uh, turn a couple pages to the right to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in 14. So turn a couple pages or a couple swipes. Uh, boy, Gutenberg, would he imagine, right, the day that uh, have all this on our phones. Okay, so we're going to Hebrews 2. We're going to continue this concept of Jesus as our mediator. Uh, Hebrews 2, 14, and I'm going to read to the first, through the first verse of chapter 3. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely... For surely it is not angels he helps, he being Jesus, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters... Who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. So Jesus is our, we acknowledge this, right? Exactly what it says. He's our high priest. God has provided us with a high priest, and it is him. And what makes him so effective as our high priest? Well, one of the things that makes him, a crucial thing that makes him so effective here in the text is that he shared in our humanity. He took on flesh and blood. And this is kind of an amazing thought to me. He was made human like us in every way, right? That is an amazing thought. But because of it, because of that, he is able to be a merciful, merciful and faithful high priest in service to God on our behalf, right? That he might make atonement for our sins, but my favorite verse, and I want to talk about it just for a moment here, my favorite verse in this text is actually verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When Jesus faced temptation, he was tempted. And when he was te tempted, he suffered through his temptation. He gets it. He understands what that looks like. And so what I want to say to you today, if you are dealing with temptation with sin you know when you're in that moment of having temptation a temptation to sin it and and there's you know what's there it's shame and so you want to kind of we want to block that out and want to wall that off but here's my counsel bring Jesus into that moment bring him into that moment of temptation he gets it he understands he understands the suffering right of the flesh let him provide you the way out show you the way out that you may be delivered from that moment of temptation. Now, let's go over to chapter 4. Keep going over to chapter 4, and we'll continue with this theme um, of Jesus as high priest. It really goes all the way, you know, through, through a vast part of the book of Hebrews. And we're going to pick it up in 
verse 14 of chapter 4. And this is really kind of the foundational text of this message of the priesthood of all believers. So 4, to, uh, 4 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So he gets it, right? He's, he's been made human. He understands weakness. He got tired. He got hungry. He was tempted. He suffered when he was tempted, but he was without sin, right? He was without sin, and so here's another reason he can be an effective high priest, right? He is the sinless one who would go before us, but again, he can empathize with our weaknesses, He understands the temptation. But because of what he's done, because of his blood, because of that he is our intercessor and high priest, we are able to approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Because of what he's done, we have an opportunity to come before the throne, right, of the eternal king. We can have an audience with the king at his throne and know that we'll be heard And know that because of Jesus, we will receive grace and mercy in our time of need. This is profound, right? The priesthood of all believers at its core, that direct access to God because of what Jesus has done, is expressed in this text. And that is the powerful concept um, that comes out of uh, the Reformers, out of the Reformation, out of Luther's, uh, this rediscovery, this... uh, re-understanding, if you will, around this. Jesus is the only priest that we need. Now, something significant along these lines happens at the point of that he's on the, the cross and he's going to breathe his last. Something really significant happens at that point. So you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it. It'll be up on the screen. It's from Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51, which read, and when Jesus had cried, had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So what's going on there? What does that mean that the curtain of the temple at that very moment was torn in two from top to bottom? So we have a, there's a picture up here that will be on the screen. Now this isn't from the temple. This is from the tabernacle, but same layout of these two inner rooms. We're going we're gonna to keep going in Hebrews, and we'll talk about those so we can leave it up on the screen. Um, but you have this outer room, if you will, that's called the most holy place. There's a first curtain there, and then you have the, the holy place. Sorry, the holy place. And this is where the priests would minister. And then you have the inner room called the most holy place or the holy of holies, And this is where this curtain uh, existed between these two rooms, also called the veil. And it's that curtain that at the moment that Jesus Jesus cries out and breathes out his last, that's the curtain that is torn in two from top to bottom. By the way, this is not a, this isn't like your shower curtain, right? Real thin or curtains that are hanging in front of your windows. This is a thick curtain, right? This is a significant thing that has occurred. Well, why is that? Well, just a, a, a note. Over the past number of weeks and even months, 
as we talked about, you know, the project that we're looking at and the vision of the church, Tony has, Pastor Tony has given us multiple uh, mentions that the tabernacle and the temple, God instructed Moses first and later David and Solomon very explicitly about how it was to be built and how the dimensions of it and so forth and how it was to look. Why? Because this is a replica, right? It's a representation of the actual throne of God in heaven. And that's why they needed to make it in exactly that kind of way. That's in, in Hebrews 8.5 mentions that. Now, you can leave that up on the screen, but let's turn over and let's, let's kind of, we'll keep going talking about this, what goes on here. In Hebrews chapter 9, we'll pick it up there. So there's several chapters that, you know, the writer of Hebrews is talking about Jesus, uh, a new priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. But he's going to pick up again on Jesus as high priest uh, uh, in chapter 9. So I'm going to read 2, chapter 9, 2 through 7, right? And you have this up on the screen, and it kind of, it's going to talk about these things. A tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the Ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Actually, we're going to do a little bit more of that today. So, When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. So just want to talk about this Day of Atonement, okay? Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That's this one day a year when one man, the high priest, could enter in to the most holy place through that second curtain. Now, just a couple, the, the Day of Atonement, if you're interested in looking at it in kind of a lot more detail, Leviticus chapter 16, you're probably just studying it like a couple days ago, I'm sure, right? Leviticus chapter 16, all, that whole chapter is about the Day of Atonement and going into detail. I'm going to just pick a couple things and then talk about some other aspects of that day. First verse I want to quote, though, is actually in 2 Samuel 6, 2, uh, which says, um, uh, so they went, they went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, so the Ark of the Covenant, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. The idea that on the cover of that ark, on that atonement cover, that mercy seat, that God himself, that was his throne. That's where he would sit on that, on that ark. Now in Leviticus chapter 16, just one verse here first, and I got another one later. Verse 2. This is what it says. Tell your brother Aaron, so Aaron's the brother of Moses, first high priest, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. So let's talk a little bit about this one time a year and kind of what went into this, uh, the magnitude of this event, going behind the curtain. So... 
one of the things that the high priest would do. So for a week, a week ahead of the actual day of atonement, the high priest would go and start to live in the temple to prepare for that day. He would study, he would, you know, go over the order of events. Why? Because he had to do it exactly right. He would, he would vow to the other priest that he would not deviate from the order of events in any way. Um, and then the day of, he had special clothing that he would wear into that place. But before he would put on that clothing, he had to wash himself, and there were multiple washings that the high priest would do, and then he'd put on these special clothes that he would wear, purified clothing, and then he would take multiple trips. He would, you know, they would sacrifice the, the different animals, and they would have multiple trips where he would take the blood of that animal, and he would take it into, um, behind the curtain, into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and, you know, there'd be blood all, blood all over on the ark and uh, so forth, on himself, on his clothing. But, and another thing that he would do, so on, you see here, the altar of incense. On the altar of incense, he would um, put light incense on that, and so the smoke would kind of billow up, and it was purposeful that he would it actually obscure his view, right, to not look upon God himself. In fact, in Leviticus 13, another verse, 16, verse 13, another verse from that text, it says this, he, the high priest, is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the covenant law so that he will not die. So I imagine this high priest, this is quite a daunting thought that he is the one who's going to be entering into that place. Right? That is a, that's a frightening thing to come into the presence of the living God. So that's what would go into that one time a year, one man going in. Oh, one other thing. Tradition tells us that that was the only time that the name of God would be uttered, would be said. The name held in such high reverence. Only one man, the high priest, only one day a year going in behind that curtain would say the name of God. So that's some context so when this curtain, when Jesus cries out and breathes out his last, and that curtain is torn in two from top to bottom, this is significant. And the writer of Hebrews picks that up. So let's keep going. Same chapter 9, two verses in chapter 9, and then jumping over to 10. So picking it up in verse 11. Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ came... As high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption." Now let's turn over to chapter 10, verse 19. We'll pick it up there, continuing. Hebrews 10, 19, and I'm going to read to verse 25. And this is the encouragement to us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience 
and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We may enter into the most holy place. All that stuff I just said. We can enter into that place, to the very presence of God, to the throne. We have an audience before the king, the eternal king, because of Jesus, because of his blood, through his blood and through his body, it describes here. We can come into that place that we would draw near to God with sincere hearts. Also in this text, back to this idea that we all have this common call, right? Uh, the, the priesthood of all believers were called to be intercessors. We then have this honor, this responsibility to intercede for one another, right? Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, encouraging one another, right, daily, investing in each other. That's the priesthood also we've taken on as the pre, in the priesthood of all believers. Now, so we're, but we can enter confidently. That's what it says. How shall we approach the throne of God? Well, it says confidently. Because of what Jesus has done, we can approach confidently and with assurance that we'll be heard. Well, I was thinking through places in the Bible that aren't just a replica you know, like where it talks about the temple or it talks about the tabernacle, but an actual vision of the throne room itself and someone coming in, into that place. So I thought of three places. Um, and I said to first service, uh, if, you, if you have any other ones, come up and tell me. So Greg Heisey came up after the service and told me like six other ones. So uh, I got a lot of reading to do. Uh, so I, I thought of three passages. One is Ezekiel chapter 1, where Ezekiel has his vision. And then Revelation chapter 4, where John has a vision, actually seeing the throne room. Throne room. But the one that I want to uh, read a couple verses from, you don't have to turn there, is from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah also has a vision of the very throne room of God. And it's his reaction when he's there that is striking to me. So a couple verses. This is Isaiah chapter 6. First two verses, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, I, Isaiah, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And then down in verse 5 and on, this is his reaction to seeing this. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So a little glimpse, right, that Isaiah had of what's going to come, what Jesus is going to do with this coal, but his reaction. How can I possibly stand in the presence of God? If I see God, I'm going to die, right? There's a common kind of response to the Scriptures. So how shall we approach God's throne of grace, this door, this way that has been opened for us into the most holy place? I want to go to one last text together. Have you turn to Luke chapter 18.
Luke chapter 18. So this is the last we'll read together. And so this is Jesus. Jesus has already come up to Jerusalem. We're going to go to verse 9, chapter 18. Jesus has already come up to Jerusalem, right? The longing of his heart, the desire. He's zealous for the temple, so he's longed to be at the temple. And once he has come there, he spends his time teaching and instructing in those few days uh, at the temple before he goes to the cross. And so this is one of his teachings during that time. Luke 18, verses 9 to 14, I'm going to read. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So here's, here's a good teaching on how to come into the presence of God that Jesus brings. We come confidently in what he's done, and yet we come humbly. We come with a repentant heart. Uh, a number of weeks back, Pastor Tony uh, talked about really at the core of Luther's 95 Theses is this message of repentance, message to repent. In fact, the very first thesis um, is kind of underpins the whole thing, which says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So we want to live a life of repentance. We want to come before the throne. We, the way is open. Jesus has done this for us. Come with expectancy, with a confidence, but also come with humility and come with a heart of repentance. Three last verses I want to share. First one's from Psalm 51, verse 17, my, which says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. This word contrite, contrition, is an interesting word, what it means, right? So what does it mean have a contrite spirit or a contrite heart? A heart that has been ground down, a heart that has been bruised, a heart that has been rubbed together, and I heard it described years ago as a crushed heart, right? It's come like that, right? Come before God with a, a crushed heart knowing that he will receive you, will receive me. He will not despise that heart. And in two other passages uh, to finish with, Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things, and so they came into being, declares the Lord? These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. And I love this text in the context of what we're talking about, the tabernacle and the, and the Ark of the Covenant, him sitting on the throne, because really what he says here is, right, there is no place that could house me. 
I'm too big. The heavens themselves are my throne, and the earth just a footstool, right? But where will I make my dwelling? I'll make my dwelling in the one who is humble, contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. And this is even more fully explained in a couple chapters earlier, Isaiah 57, verse 15. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is where Jesus' blood has opened a way for us to come into the very presence, into the most holy place, the holy of holies, an audience with the king in his throne room. But even more so, the creator himself has said, I will come and take up residence within you, within your heart. So the question for this morning, in closing, do you have a heart of repentance? Do you have a contrite heart? If you do, then my prayer for you would be that God's presence would fill you and fill you to overflowing into the lives of the people around you, into your oikos, into all you'd come into contact with. If you don't, Now, maybe you've never repented, you never called out to God, or maybe you did, but you know what? It's a long journey, and as time has gone on, maybe our heart has grown hardened or cold, and we'd say, I don't know that I still have a contrite heart, a heart of repentance. Then I think the prayer for us this morning is to cry out to God for a new heart and a new spirit, for His Spirit to fill us, that we might approach His throne of grace with confidence confidence, knowing that we will find grace and mercy in our time of need. So let's pray. Jesus, we honor you. We lift up your name. You are the name above all names from the foundations of the earth. And it is the Father's glory to exalt you in your name. And so we exalt you too. It is incomprehensible what you have done because of your shed blood, because of your sacrifice, your willingness to lay down your life for people who were your enemies, who were still sinners. And now we have been brought close. We can say phrases like, we have a personal relationship with Jesus. We have a personal relationship with God. We can come into the presence of the Almighty One, into the most holy place. So we honor you. I pray for those here whose hearts either have grown hard uh, hard over time, just the life beating on them, those who may be dealing with temptation, Lord, that they would come to you, they would invite you into that place. You would respond because you are our merciful and faithful high priest. And for those who have never turned, never repented, Father, today, may today be the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Come to him. We pray this, Father. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So in thinking about uh, what's the benediction and what's the blessing for a message on the priesthood of all believers, my mind thought, boy, the, the best, I think the only blessing I could give is the priestly blessing from Numbers chapter 6. 
This is a blessing that God gave to Moses and to Aaron. And interestingly, at the end of it, what it describes about when this blessing is read, it says that so they, the priests, so they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. That when this was proclaimed, his name would be on the people. And so that's what I, that's what I ask of you. Receive this blessing this morning. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. You're dismissed.